Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 10 tonight. Revelation chapter 10. As we have moved along the timeline of events in the book of Revelation, we've stopped periodically in passages that, uh, that explain what's going on. They're often, often called parenthetical passages because uh, the unfolding of, of the events in the, in, the, in the chronological order in Revelation are put on hold while John shares information that Jesus is showing him to write. Uh, just for instance, when we were back in chapter 7, that was a parenthetical chapter when the angels were holding back the destruction as the 144,000 uh, Jews were sealed, uh, protected, and then also in that chapter the martyrdom of saints was explained. Now we come to chapter 10, which is another section that's parenthetical. Uh, it interrupts the, the flow of the events. The six trumpets have already sounded. The earth has been devastated by catastrophic destruction. And then there was, there's a pause right now before the seventh trumpet is sounded. That will happen in chapter 11 at the, very, the last five verses of verses 15 through 19 of chapter 11. And that sound of the seventh trumpet will mark the end of the first half of the tribulation and the beginning of the second half, the three and a half years at the end. And uh, in that section also, we've had the trumpet judgments at the beginning, and then in the second half, the, uh, the, the bowl judgments or the vials that are pulled up, poured out upon the earth, uh, the vials of God's wrath. So the interlude just before the seventh trumpet gives, gives man a time to reflect on who God is and why he's pouring out this judgment on mankind. And as we think about that, we, we think it and get this new appreciation, I believe, for the righteousness and the justice of a, a holy God. He can't allow sin to go unpunished. He's also not only righteous, but he's patient. He, he's waited to give man time and opportunity to repent. We also see his grace. He's very gracious. He's provided a way of salvation for men's sins to be judged through his own son on the cross. And as we pause and read about this interlude, I think we ought to let his righteousness and his patience and his grace in our own lives be considered. And I hope you do as you read this. You, you realize that we are not facing the wrath of God because Jesus took our punishment. It's a wonderful application as we go through this devastation of the, of the events of Revelation. Well, in this interlude, uh, we read about an angel, a book, and we're going to take the next two verses of the next chapter and, and include the measuring rod. So the title of the message tonight, an angel, a book, and a measuring rod. And I have the option to, to exit anywhere if we don't get through on time. And so uh, just let you know, if we don't get to the measuring rod and you're looking at your watch saying, you know, it's time, it'll still be there if... If the Lord doesn't come back, and, and we'll, we'll cover it'll still be there if he does come back, right? His, his word is eternal. Um, so then, in, in Revelation 11, 3 through 14, we'll read about two witnesses. And then in uh, 11, 15 to 19, we mentioned the seventh trumpet judgment. And then in chapters 12 through 14, another interlude where 
personalities of the end times are introduced. That's a fascinating study. And then in chapters 15 through 19, we'll read about those bowls of wrath that are poured out, the tribulation ending and the final um, battle of Armageddon. And then the, the, the last chapter is we look forward to the eternal state, heaven, and uh, wonderful uh, passages there that we can look forward to. Well, here the angel. Uh, so first of all, we'll notice his appearance in verses 1 and 2. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. So the question always comes up, who is this angel? And there is a, there is a really, between good men, good commentators on this passage, there is a split. And I... You know, at first, uh, I, well, those guys have good arguments, and then I read the other guy. Well, they have good arguments, too, so we're not going to have a church split over that. Uh, but some say this angel is Christ. Um, the rainbow on his, is on his head. The rainbow colors also appeared around the throne of God, if you remember that scene. You can also see the angel robed in a cloud, and God is often identified with clouds in the Bible. His face is as the sun. It's the same description we saw in Revelation 1.16, speaking of Christ when he's walking through the lampstands, the churches. His countenance, in 1.16 says, his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And then his feet, like pillars of fire. Again, a description of Jesus in Revelation 1.15, where we read, and his feet like unto fine brass as they burned in a furnace. Now others say this is a created angel uh, and not... Christ himself, uh, the men that say that, Newell, Smith, Walvard, LaHaye, MacArthur, uh, their argument, let me just list three of the strong arguments that they have of why this is an angel. Uh, first of all, in the text doesn't specifically say that it is Christ. And also he's called another angel. Did you see that? Another, and we, we've mentioned before how there are two different words that can be used for other. Alas, which is another of the same kind. Heteros, which is another of a different kind. Um, and so this word is alas, another angel, another angel of the same kind that's already been previously mentioned. If he had, were thinking, we would expect if it was heteros, then we would expect him to use that if it were Christ, another of a different kind. Walward writes, it seems evident from the context that this angel is not the sixth angel mentioned in 913, nor the angel which sounds the seventh trumpet in 1115. So it's another. Also, when John identifies Christ throughout the book of Revelation, he does so with very specific titles. It gives no room for speculation to think, is this Jesus or is it not? Um, but he uses terms like the Son of Man, the First and Last, the Son of God, the One who is Holy and True, the Amen, the Lion from the tribe of Judah, the Lamb, the Word of God, and, and here we don't have any specific identification like that given about this angel. So we'll remain undecided on that unless you have a, a reason that you believe uh, is, is stronger than the other side. But what do we see in the text? Well, it says another mighty angel. Aren't you glad that all God's angels are not limited in any power? They are strong. They are mighty. In Psalm 103, verse 20, we read, Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, 
that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. And I'm glad that they are given enough strength to do exactly what he wants them to do. I know some of you, the way you drive, his guardian angels are on active duty all the time. So another mighty angel. And also he comes down from heaven. That's where the angels of God receive their commands, their instructions. They are messengers of God. Clouds are associated with the second coming of Christ and also the judgment he will bring. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. And so clouds, we know a lot about those in Michigan. When you see a dark cloud coming, you, you head for cover, you take down the umbrellas, you put things away, because a storm is brewing. So clouds generally are, are a symbol of storms or of judgment. The rainbow then, coming right after that, is a sign of God's mercy. It's a sign of the covenant that God made with Noah, that he would never again destroy the earth with the flood. And I think that's one of the most beautiful demonstrations of God's mercy that we see. Whenever you're out there and see the dark clouds moving away, and in front of those, a rainbow, you see judgment, and you also see God's mercy, his promise. And so here, the angel is announcing that God is a God of judgment, and he's also a God of mercy. Habakkuk cried, in wrath, remember mercy. The nature of God is to do just that. His wrath is withheld as his mercy is extended. We know that if man continues to reject that mercy, that he will eventually face God's wrath. And that's what we're reading about here in Revelation. What does this angel have in his hand? And he had, I guess I just told you which side of the argument I'm on, right? <laughs> he had in his hand a little book open. He had this little scroll. We said a book in Revelation is a, a biblion, but it's a scroll. And the scroll is open. It's different from the one of the seven seals that Jesus had the authority to open. Walford says, this book, by contrast, is already open and specifically called a little book referring to its small size. And again, there's disagreement on, on the commentaries on that. But he has this book in his hand. How is he standing? He's, his right foot is on the sea. His left foot is on the earth. He seems to be huge in size and power as he stands straddling the shore. His pose is symbolic that when the seventh trumpet sounds, there will be more destruction over the entire sea and over the entire earth. What's his speech? The voice of the angel in verse 3. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. So as his voice is as large as his stature or size and strength, it's compared to that of a lion. The roar of a lion paralyzes its prey with fear. And there was an echo as uh, to, to the, this cry that sounds like a lion by the seven peals of thunder. Thunder in the Bible, also an indication of divine judgment, of a storm, of a trial. It was heard during the plague of Egypt, Exodus 9.23, and Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along the, upon the ground, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. And so this divine judgment. John hears again from heaven, verse 4. When the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I heard about, I, I was about to write, 
And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. John heard a voice from heaven that told him he was not to record the message that was given in the voices of these seven thunders. He says, I heard a voice from heaven. The passage doesn't say whose voice that was. It could be God. It could be Christ. It could be another angel. Uh, we can be certain that whatever voice was given, it carried the authority, the divine authority of God. We're not told why John was not allowed to write what he heard. As we think about that, there are some things that God doesn't reveal to us. And, and that gives me a confidence that what he does reveal to us is all that we need. Again, an argument for the sufficiency of Scripture. God tells us exactly what we need. And here he told John, seal that up. And for whatever reasons he has, we're not to know that. We come to verses 5 through 7 and we see this oath. The angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. And he swore by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servant the prophets. So this angel raised his hand. Isn't it interesting that we do that in court, or people do that in court when they're, when they're giving testimony? It's a sign of taking a solemn oath that truth is going to be told. He swore by the one who's everlasting and who's the creator of all things. And can I just take a minute here and talk about oaths? Some quote Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 and 35, and say that it's wrong to take an oath. In Matthew, Jesus is correcting the Pharisees who are trying to deceive others by swearing by the temple or the dome of the temple uh, as a kind of token that validated their, their lie. <laughs> And Jesus said, let your words be true. Let your yeas be yeas, your nays be nay, either yes or no. The Bible doesn't say that it's wrong to make a promise or to take a vow. It does say in Ecclesiastes 5.5, 5, it's better if you don't take a vow than to take one and not be true with it, not pay it. In other words, make sure that you keep your promises. So it's recorded in the Bible uh, several uh, vows that were given or taken, Abraham, Isaac, David, the Apostle Paul, all made vows, and they kept them. Well, here the angel made a vow. And this vow was that it's time for God to judge the earth. The oath was that there should be time no longer. I hope I, I, I don't ruin a, a, a favorite song of yours about time being no more. But that doesn't mean here that time will be no more. It means that, that time has run out. The time has finally come for God to judge the earth. John Walvoord says, even in eternity there will be a time relationship of, of one event following another. There will be a sequence of events. Wiersbe says the word that is translated time actually means delay. God has been delaying judgment so that lost sinners have time to repent. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 9, we read about the scoffers that on the last days are asking, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, he's not coming back, is he? 
And the reason is given in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some would count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, his mercy is seen. What a solemn and sobering cry for mankind is this angel's oath. You're out of time. When he says that, there will be no time to repent. The idea that time has finally run out and the time of God's judgment has come is further clarified as we come to verse 7, when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet and the mystery of God will be finished. Just as he told his servants, the prophets, Walbert writes, the prediction is related to the full manifestation of divine power. Okay, he's talking about a secret there that's or a mystery that was something concealed that's now revealed. And so Walbert is saying what that is. The prediction is related to the full manifestation of divine power, majesty, and holiness of God, which will be evident in the glorious return of Christ, the, establish, the establishment of his millennial kingdom, and the creation of the eternal state which will follow. What an oath. What a promise that's made by this angel. We have a similar verse that stresses the urgency of trusting Jesus as personal Savior in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In verses 8 through 11, we come to the book. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. Here's instruction that's given to John. And John is not just taking things, information, and writing them down. Sometimes he's participating as he's asked to do. And so he obeys. Verse 9, And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. John here listens to what he is supposed to do from this voice from heaven. It's probably the same voice that he heard in verse 4 that we said was either God or his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, or an angel. It was a divine message, an authoritative message from God. And as I think about that, I think, what would I have done? I think I would have been out of fear. Okay, I'll eat this little book. I don't know what it is. I don't know about you. I've seen people walk by the, uh, the, the table of refreshment sometimes and pass some things and pick up other things. You're very cautious in what you take. But here, it was God who told him to take this little book and eat it. He was told that it's going to be sweet in your mouth, but it's going to be bitter in your stomach. You know, the prophet Ezekiel obeyed a similar command. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9, it begins, it goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 4, and the scroll he ate was written on both sides. It contained the prophecy of, of lamentations, of mournings, of woe, and he ate it, and it was sweet in his mouth. And then he was told to go and prophesy the warnings to the house of Israel. So John also obeyed. And what a picture for each of us. 
We ought to have a hunger for the book of God, the book that he's given us. Some of it is sweet to the taste. You underline those verses. You memorize them. They are satisfying to an empty heart. Psalm 19.10, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 15.16, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me joy and rejoicing of mine heart. And often we come away from our Bible reading and we say, what a blessing that was. But there are some passages in the Bible that are, that are not necessarily pleasant. There are words of judgment. And as we've been going through these chapters in the book of Revelation, it's hard for us to consider what they're saying. They show the just and fair punishment that God will bring on man's sins. So John ate this entire message. There are sweet promises to the follower of Christ. There are stern warnings to the judgment to the one who refuses God's grace. But we need to hunger for all of this book. All of it is by inspiration of God and is profitable. The law, the promises, the cursings, the blessings, we need to partake of it and hunger for the God's word we long for Jesus to come and make things right. And as we read this destruction that comes, we say, finally, we've been looking forward to this. When all wrongs are made right and all rights are, are rewarded. But we also grieve over loved ones who have not repented. And it's, it's a bittersweet thing, isn't it? We want Christ to come, but we want others to be saved. We pray for them. We witness to them. We want them to accept God's gift of, of salvation that's free, that we've taken. Well, John was told that he has to prophesy again. And I believe this is a recommissioning of his, uh, of his task to write what God is telling him to write. The prophecy of the end times, he says, is for the entire world. It's for many peoples. Uh, the word there is laos, uh, the, the Laodicea is the, the city of the people, or rule of the people. Uh, nations, ethnos, those would be people groups. Tongues, glossa, the languages that are different. And for kings, the, the, the word for king there, basilica. And so uh, this is for all, all nations. And John is, is reminded again, you're writing this for everyone. And we praise God that he's pulled back the curtain to allow John to see what's ahead. And the record is here for the whole world to read, to be warned about. And we're in awe as we read how bad this judgment is going to be, how severe, but how just. But let me remind you of the blessing that we read at the beginning of the book in Revelation 1-3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. And with knowledge comes responsibility. And with the knowledge that we have, may we be moved to witness more faithfully, more urgently to others who still need to come to Christ and put their faith in him. We have six minutes left for the measuring read. Let's see if we can do this. 
verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now this reed is described to be like a rod. The word for reed is a word for a plant or a stem of a plant that John says is like this rod, which is a word that means a stick or a staff, a cane. There's a plant that grew in the Jordan River Valley that had a stalk that grew about 15 to 20 feet in height, in length. And it was hollow. It was lightweight, but it was sturdy enough to be used as a cane. I think of bamboo when I was reading that, as a cane or a walking stick. And John was told to use this stick to measure. What's he to measure in verse 1? The temple of God, the altar, and those who worshiped in it, in the temple. So the temple of God would include the holy of holies, the holy place, the altar, probably the brazen altar, not the altar of incense from chapter 8, and those who worship in in it. Who's, Who's allowed to worship in the temple? Only the Israelites, only Jews. We're not told the dimensions here. And we always ask, well, why do you measure it if you're not going to record the dimensions? One author points out three other places where measurements are made. In Zechariah 2, a man is seen measuring Jerusalem. God is preparing to judge Jerusalem in that context. In Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel used a reed to measure the temple of the millennium. In Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem will be measured, and we'll have the exact measurements of that city when we get there. But each of these seem to indicate, first of all, ownership. You measure property that belongs to you. If you're going home tonight and you saw someone measuring your lot or your house, you'd have some questions, wouldn't you? Uh, But you have every right to go out and measure things and putting on a new roof or whatever and that would be fine why because the property is yours and so this measurement shows ownership also the measuring may indicate the right to protect or to remove protection to allow judgment to come and 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 God is telling John to measure these things because he owns them and he will protect these from judgment especially these these places for the Israelites, the temple, the altar, the Jews. Walver says, it is saying in effect that God is the judge of man's worship and man's character and that all must give an account to him. John is, is measuring this temple. This is the temple of the tribulation. There are different temples in the history of Israel, all patterned after the temple in heaven, the tabernacle in heaven. First temple was built by Solomon, the second by Zerubbabel after returning from the exile. The third was built by Herod during the time of Christ. The fourth will be built during the tribulation. Now, right now, the Dome of the Rock is in the place where the temple should be built or will be built. Muslims believe Muhammad ascended from this place to heaven. It's a very important place in their religion And uh, so it's being left. There's not a takeover of that so that the temple can be built. It probably won't be removed until the Antichrist gets into power. 
uh, he'll be the one who's able to persuade everyone to join this one world religion and uh, worshiping the image of the beast. But John is describing this temple that is built in the tribulation. For the first half, the Antichrist will set up his throne there as Messiah. And then he'll break his covenant with Israel after three and a half years. Uh, we read that in the prophecy of Daniel. And in that time, in that, th- in that middle of the tribulation, in breaking that covenant, he will desecrate the temple, and the Bible calls that the abomination of desolation. The fifth and last temple will be built uh, during the millennium, and God will be the one who builds that temple. That'll be glorious. But John was not told to measure the outer court or the court of the Gentiles as we know it. The reason not to measure it because it is given in the text. It is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city that they tread underfoot Forty and two months. The Gentiles, under the leadership of Antichrist, will tread underfoot the temple for the last three and a half years. Uh, This is an act of desecration. When someone takes our American flag and treads on it, it's a sign of, of their disrespect, of their contempt for America. This is the first mention in the book of Revelation about the midpoint of the tribulation. Three and a half years. It's found in here in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, chapter 12, verse 6, chapter 13, verse 5, well, also chapter 12, verse 14. We saw in the 70th week of Daniel, um, which is the, the last week of seven years, seven sevens, we talked about that, Daniel 9, 27, that that 70th week or the week of years, seven years, is still to come. And we mentioned how the Antichrist will, will break that covenant in the middle of the week, and that's in Daniel 9.27. Well, here in Revelation 11.2 and 3, it says that uh, we have the, the number 40 in two months. That's three and a half years. Okay? Also in chapter uh, 11, verse 3, it says, and I'll, pour, I'll give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, based, uh, based on a 360-day year, that's three and a half years. Uh, Jews have uh, a calendar that has a, a, a year of 355 days. Romans in the Western world measures by 365 days. So this is right in the middle, 360-day year. Again, that three and a half years. Revelation 12.6 talks about 1,203 days, again. Revelation 12.14 he, he says, a time and times and half a time. And uh, it doesn't take much to figure out a time is a year, and times, plural, is two years, and then a half a time. So we have that reference, Revelation 12.4. And then Revelation 13.5, 40 and two months, again given three and a half years. And remember, the design of the tribulation is to bring Israel back to a belief in the Messiah, faith in Christ. There'll be a remnant of Israel who will believe and enter into the millennium. The seventh trumpet is about to sound. Again, this is a parenthetical pause before that takes place. And that trumpet sound will mark the the second half of the seven-year tribulation. The rule of Antichrist will be turned against Israel, God's people, whom God will protect and save as a nation. Uh, for him, um, 
Remember, John has been allowed to see through this curtain the prophecy of what God wanted him to record for us to read. And we're studying it now. We're reading it tonight as, as God intended John to, to write and reveal the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right now, we're in the church age. As we saw the, the command that we need to be urgent in our message, letting people know now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And as we see what will happen, what will take place on this earth, it should give us a greater burden for the lost around us. And I know somebody came to me this morning and told about how they were praying for a friend. And they're saying, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm giving too much, you know, a gospel track all the time, a message all the time, a witness all the time. I don't want to lose this bridge, this, this conversation I have with them. And I think the only answer we have is, Let's be in prayer that the Holy Spirit will break down the barriers and that he'll give us wisdom to know what to say and when to say it and how to say it so that they'll see we have a compassion for them. We don't want to see them face God's judgment and God's wrath, especially when Christ is offering free salvation. And it just, if you... If you could do anything else to make a person get saved, we'd be doing it, wouldn't we? But let's be burdened. Let's pray. Let's be faithful in our witness. And let's see what God will do. We've seen a salvation this week at Vacation Bible School. It's exciting. He's still at work. He can still save. Nothing is too hard for him. And so uh, our takeaway tonight is to have a greater urgency to give the gospel a faithful life that backs up the, the, the grace that we're telling other people about, that forgives us of our sin. And so let's live the gospel and give the gospel to those around us with a greater urgency. Father in heaven, I pray that as we go through a study, it won't be just an academic course of what do these verses say and what do they mean. They help us to walk away with the right application, with the right perspective on the fact that these things are going to take place just as you have revealed them. And I ask that you would help us to take the time that we have to let others know there will be a time when the opportunity is gone and help us to see them put their faith in Christ. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.